Welcome to the Alien Probe Podcast. It is Sunday, May 7th, 2023. I'm Doug, and joined again today is Deb. Deb, looking good? Oh, yeah. How's it going? It Already is. all geeked up, it's ready a, to go? It's early in the morning. Ready to go <laughs> to do some Planet Serpo? Oh, I'm going to Planet Episode Serpo. 3, need a nap? There are no dogs on Planet Serpo. There's no right? dog. Yeah, we're having a... We're having a dog, a couple of dog weeks. We had uh, Piper the pit bull for a week and a half, and then we have, uh, you know, uh, my son Johnny's dog, Aston, for a few days while he does some Supercross watching in Denver. So um, here we are, uh, episode three. Now, if you want to hear about one and two, if you've jumped into three, we've done obviously one and two, so you'll want to. Um, listen to those first if, if you like to bring you up to speed on what's going on. Um, it's basically 12. Uh, we're sending, uh, we had sent 12 people, uh, Air Force officers, and um, to another planet to uh, study there. And then in exchange, they left uh, um, EBE with us. Um, so to, uh, we're kind of doing the preliminary. And then eventually we'll actually do um, narrative on the actual um, study of the planet and then the um, narrative from the commander who's uh, had a diary, a log of what was going on. So we're going to jump into uh, episode three. And I know a lot of people, I can see a lot of people started with, I can see on the analytics that people are listening to two and then they're jumping back to one. So um uh, I think it'll be a good listen. I mean, if you want it, if we're doing this from the book, so there's full uh, disclosure, we're doing it we're doing it from the book. Um, so we can, you know, if you want to read that. There's also Serpo, um, the website, uh, where people can, um, and uh, past people involved with the project. It was in the 60s into the 70s. We were there 13 years, so. Um, we're going to jump right into it now, and um, here you go, Deb. And somebody's walking by, so they could be barking. Yeah, there's uh, a dog. The likelihood that this rendezvous was prearranged explains why the military retrieval crew got there so quickly. The over-the-road military response had to be lightning fast in order to be ahead of the supersonic alien craft. Evidently, the retrieval team had been alert throughout the... Uh, Arizona, Nevada area, anticipating that just such a mishap might occur. Back just then, might. yeah, back then there was a lot of activity, you know, a lot of, you know, these things as we developed our radar. The theory is, as we developed our radar, um, it interfered somehow with the flight characteristics of the um, UAPs, UFOs that were in the area. Well, what's most amazing about the rapid response is the fact that it could only have been the result of some sort of communication. This was not a case of some civilian report to the police who then contacted the military. That would have taken hours, perhaps days, because, you know, slow. Yeah. It had to be a direct message given the, given the geographic coordinates of the crash since it occurred in a remote mountainous area. Not like, you know, a passerby, ooh, look. Yeah. we're all ready yeah there's a response team as we went from the four there was there's speculation that we had saucer retrievals in the 30s maybe before and we've fine-tuned i finally 
owned our response, uh, you know, deal in there. It implies that the military had been in direct communication with the aliens, since we already know that the Los Alamos scientists had a direct link to the alien planet. The uh, sequence of events uh, might have involved a report back to Serpo uh, by the stranded crew, followed by a message to Los Alamos from Serpo, followed by an immediate message from Los Alamos to the response team. That's an interesting speculation. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, according to the memo, it was later determined that the aliens in the monitoring craft had been very pleased with the humane treatment that we provided to the ground disc crew. Well, that's good. We got a good Yelp review. Yeah. That means that obviously we had cordial relations with these ETs after the landing. That's the only way we would have received that feedback. Yeah, treated better than some of the animals we saw in uh, Guardians uh, of the Galaxy. Yes, we're not. We just saw Guardians of the Galaxy, the latest. Was it the third one? It's the third and last one, I think. Um, yeah, it's. I'm, I don't want to give anything away because it's brand new, but uh, it was less than we uh, anticipated. Quality wise, well, story wise, the quality was good. Uh, the memo says that the aliens had their own agenda. They were busy doing their own analytics or analysis of the uh, items provided in the quarantine area setup. This included food facilities and and us. It began to appear that we were the captives and they were the captors. The two uninjured aliens requested that they be allowed to uh, re-enter the craft. Can we go home, please? Yes. We agreed, but left the hatch open so they could be observed like teenagers. You can go in your room, but you got to leave the door leave open. Leave the door open. <laughs> we'll see like, what you're doing. It was later realized that they were probably communicating with the monitoring craft. Um, after they exited, all four aliens were taken away to the special habitat that they had, or, had already been prepared for them, a lot of Thalamos laboratories, um, where they were given medical treatment and tests that... The memo says that they were secured in a medical facility that was manned by doctors, bioastronauts, physicists, chemists, and linguists. At this time, communication was limited to basic sign language, like the gorillas. Yeah, again, basic. Basic. Again, that high degree of preparation clearly demonstrates that the entire operation was prearranged. That habitat at Los Alamos was evidently the same one created to house EBE-1 before his death one year earlier. The fact that the Kingman aliens were brought to the very same facility clearly implies they were also Eben. Yeah, in the memo, we learn of an interesting incident that occurred after the aliens had been taken away to Los Alamos. Um, the military retrieval team decided to enter the craft. What followed was unexpected and bizarre, according to the memo. An intra crew was formed. They were dressed in clean room clothing and med medical surgical masks. The size of the crew was not mentioned. Communications between the crew and the team outside was set up prior to entry. What happened with the entry crew while inside of the vessel was noted as follows. Communications failed. The crew, after one hour inside, emerged from the craft confused with upset stomachs, removed their masks, and threw up. Well, that's not good. I was hoping that they would move their mouse before they do that. Absolutely. Yeah. What was astonishing was that they could not remember any of the inside details of the craft. When, six months later, a member of that original entry crew, a fighter pilot, was asked if he'd like to be part of the new entry crew, he replied, I'd rather take a rocket ship to hell than go back into that craft. Well, that's, <laughs> that's not great. a that that is, experience. That is <laughs> not a good sign. Wow. 
That experience clearly connects the Kingman craft with the alien ship that took the astronauts to Serpo. Several members of that team had the identical reaction when they first entered the Even craft. What is striking about this retrieval operation, according to the memo, is the fact that the military team came so completely equipped. They had a tank trailer that they used to transport Sherman tanks. Oh, yeah, they are prepared. Wow. That means they had to know in advance the approximate size of the alien craft, which was exactly 30 feet in diameter. It's it's something about the size of the craft. It's always by times three. It's a weird, uh-huh. you know. But, you know, so obviously the purpose of the entire incident was to give give us the disc. Evidently, the aliens were on their way to the Nevada test site to land it there and then be taken to Los Alamos uh, by bus. It's interesting because there's different discussions about what these things are discs or were they large, like oval. A few of the crashes were more um, just like a large, like a tic-tac, but Mm -hmm. kind of routed off. Well, when they landed prematurely near Kingman, we sent the tank trailer. The crane on the tank trailer was able to lift the disc easily and load it onto the trailer. However, they were concerned about the overhang, which might have made the load too wide for city streets. Oh, they're going through city streets with this thing. Got to get it there somehow. But when they tried to tilt the craft, it proved impossible. So according to the memo, finally it was decided to use the house method of movement utilizing roadblocks secured by military vehicles. This was done, and the alien craft was taken to the Nevada test site. So they did this during the middle of the day, right? You see this, you know, everybody off the streets. It's no problem. <laughs> Nothing's wrong. <laughs> Nothing to see Just here. go in your houses and the streets will be closed. I'm sure they did it in the middle of the night when nobody was out. Except one, one drunk guy roaming the neighborhood. <laughs> what the heck? What is that? The t- scientists of the test uh, site were frustrated by the re-entry problem. Also, they found it difficult to concentrate because of a low humming sound that continued to emanate from inside the disc. And uh, since they couldn't enter, uh, they couldn't find the issue. Oh, no, not no hum. No. Yeah. I couldn't go in. For six months, they made no progress in analyzing the craft. So since the four Evens at Los Alamos wanted to return to the craft, it was decided to bring them to the Nevada test site. And then by this time, the tallest alien and the sure bioacetal alien, which is probably five, five and a half feet tall. <laughs> It, the bioastronauts engineer uh, had established a rudimentary form of communication. The four aliens entered the craft, and after a few minutes, the hum was silenced. Upon emerging, the tall alien asked the bioastronauts engineer to accompany him back inside, and this was permitted. The memo says, After some time passed, both made their exit. The engineer looked well and smiling. After that event, the Evens' preferences were honored. They were allowed to be housed at the test site near their craft, and the request for additional material, equipment, and literature were granted. So they just wanted their little home. Yeah, they wanted their stuff back. Thus began a new phase of human-alien cooperation that allowed the reverse engineering program to begin in earnest. That would have been sometime around November 1953. Wow. In attempting to reconstruct the sequence of events that occurred after the alien craft landed near Kingman, it becomes clear by putting the two versions together that the scene was staged for the benefit of the investigators. It must have taken place after the four alien, alive aliens had been packed off to Los Alamos. Oh, so when they 
they brought the, the reporters in to see what was left after they yeah they took him back to the real aircraft and yeah okay the dead even seen by Stancil could easily uh, have been one of the ten that was preserved cryogenically at Los Alamos and was brought to the site on dry ice just to participate in a tableau to be observed by the 15 investigators. A nifty piece of stagecraft presented by an ad hoc U.S. Air Force theater group. Oh, we get to, let's put on a play. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's bring out a dead see alien. See what you want to see. There's one. Well, they, want, they don't want to see a bunch of them in there because that'll freak everybody out. Well, it's just this one it was guy. It's just this one guy that just you know, got <laughs> lost and landed on our planet. There'll never be any more. President Kennedy, Kennedy was catapulted into the middle of world-shaking events in his very first year in office. Perhaps most important was Vostok 1, the successful orbital flight of Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, Gagarin? Gagarin. on April 12th in 1961. Even though Gagarin was in space uh, for a short 108 minutes and made only a single orbit, this was a shot across the bow for the United States because we weren't even close to matching that accomplishment, even though we had uh, Warner Von Braum on our uh, NASA team. Yeah, we kept launching stuff and it kept blowing up and things. We we did our best. Uh, we tried. Yeah, we caught up eventually, but darn. Kennedy was <laughs> galvanized by that event. Eight days later, he shot off a memo. I mean, write me a memo. I need to see. Come in here, Margaret. Write me a memo to Vice President Lyndon Johnson, whom he had appointed as chairman of the Space Council. That asked the question, do we have a chance of beating the Soviets by putting a laboratory in space or by a trip around the moon or a rocket to land on the moon or by a rocket? He's had a lot of choices. Lot or of by a rocket to go to the moon and back with a man. Something. Is there any other space <laughs> program which promises dramatic results in which we could win? I wish I could do a st- Massachusetts accent. We're saying that today. Uh, Kennedy was deeply committed to his new frontier initiative and Space was the new frontier. Space travel was the top of the agenda, and he wasn't going to settle for second best to the Soviets. No. Yeah, I remember back in the day, they were the Red Scourge, back when I was in the military. <laughs> yeah. Things have changed a lot over the years, haven't they? A little bit. It clearly demonstrates the importance of this subject of Kennedy when it's realized that this memo to Johnson was sent only three days after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba. <laughs> you have enough to do. One would think that <laughs> the explosive subject would have been uppermost in his mind. Just the previous days, several members of the invasion force had been executed by Castro. Damn it, we're going to the moon. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, forget this now. We're, we're on to different things. We know now from several sources, including Jacqueline Kennedy... How severely shaken Kennedy was over the Bay of Pigs debacle, which he should have been. And yet, only one month later, on May 25th, 1961, he delivered his famous Man on the Moon speech to a joint session of Congress, demonstrating once more his strong commitment to American triumphs in space. Deb, Deb, Deb. (laughs) I I like how I... I definitely wanted you to read this segment. I guess this must be good. (laughs) Kennedy's confidence that we could put a man on the moon by the end of the decade was based on Von Braun's analysis, which had been solicited by Vice President Johnson. That wasn't that exciting. That wasn't that exciting of a sentence, but damn, (laughs) it's mine. That's definitely yours. 
In Von Braun's April 29th response to Vice President Johnson's inquiry, he said, we have an excellent chance of beating the Soviets to the first landing of a crew on the moon, including return capability, of course. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we're there, but no, we can't get back. Yeah, that wouldn't be that good of a project if we don't make it back. With an all-out crash program, I think we could accomplish the objective by 67 or 68. In his memo, Von Braun also discussed funding the development of a nuclear rocket as a long-term goal for going beyond the moon to the exploration of space. In his speech to Congress, Kennedy asked for approval for development of the rover nuclear rocket. He said, this gives promise of someday providing a means for even more exciting and ambitious exploration of space, perhaps beyond the moon, perhaps to the very ends of the solar system itself. You might as well continue I'm on. Continue. <laughs> well, you, you stopped me in the middle of a sentence. I don't well, I know you, you ran over me. No, because Kathy Alford, there's no... Oh, good job. The, the oh, look, it is. Way to fly. That's good. <laughs> the turf wars between intelligence agencies in the early 60s was intense, even before the Defense Intelligence Agency was created. The other agencies were highly proactive or protective of their... I want them to be proactive. Yeah of their sources and information and reluctant to share power and influence with other organizations. Oh, that's all changed. They'll, yeah, they'll probably just... They all get along now. Well, no, they don't. That's the problem. They don't talk to each other and everything's compartmentalized and that's the reason why we don't have any answers to anything as far as UAP and UFOs and extraterrestrials and, you know. In forty-seven, Truman had created Majestic 12, MJ-12, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the National Security Council, NSC. Then, it, Now, how many of these do you need? These alphabet places do you need? Then, in 52, just before leaving office, Truman formed the National Security Agency as a division of the Department of Defense. By the time President Kennedy took, Kennedy took office in January of 1961, the various agencies had all staked out their own territories and resented intrusion into their affairs. In addition, each branch of the military had its own intelligence capability. And they didn't share. And the money we spend on this, everybody's doing the same thing. And it's this new arrow thing is 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 the latest of the UAP um, studies and try to find out what's going on out there. And they're still doing they so their answer to you know, trying to figure out what's in space is to make another, yet another agency that doesn't talk to any other agencies. Yeah. And this guy's, he got interviewed and he would, he had no answers. The, the venerable office of the uh, National Intelligence Agency. Oh, now you did it. I, I did something here. I don't know what it is. Um, National Intelligence Agency. How come that thing did that? That's weird. I don't know. So, um, it, you're right there, up, up. Were we right there? Right there, that Doug. Um, founded in eight, 1882 was, uh, technical difficulties, folks, sorry, was supremely influential and powerful and probably trumped the youthful CIA in that decade, as did the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, further complicating the alphabet stew was the practice of like we discussed. That's at every level. Compartmentalization. Yeah, they're never going to get any answers doing that. I. That's my low level of being a state worker. <laughs> it's the same thing. Secret information was kept contained at the various agencies as well as different at different levels within each organization. 
Consequently, the likelihood that any single high-ranking individual knew what other high-ranking individuals knew was remote. All the intelligence paths met only at the level of MJ-12, and it was the above-top-secret and untouchable committee that pulled all the strings. In mid-61, the CIA blamed the failure of the Bay of Pigs operation on Kennedy because he refused to send in air support. U.S. Air Force, Air Force General Charles Cabell, the, old, the deputy director of the CIA at the time, was the most outspoken in placing this blame. Although this resentment was also shared by the CIA foot soldier participants in the raid. Kennedy, on the other hand, blamed the CIA for the botched operation and then fired Alan Doles, the longtime director of the CIA, as well as Kabul, and promised to break up the CIA into a thousand pieces. A thousand pieces. Yeah, and this is the conjecture that this, you know, the CIA did Kennedy in, you know. And this is part of the problem that we can't divulge all of this is tied together we can't divulge what we've done the horrific things that have been done in the name of national security or in the name of you know just being po'd about what somebody's done and they're going to break apart you don't want to break apart the cia i mean you know you can't do that not well they don't do what he told them to well this he made the dia he made yeah. his own well i don't want cia i'll just make my own agency and they have to tell me what's going on well CIA was still there doing their thing. They knew about, allegedly they've known about these, uh, the evens before, you know, this even came up. This resulted in the unvarnished hatred of Kennedy by the CIA and was most likely the principal motivating factor in prompting Kennedy to create, like I just said, the DIA in October of 61. On one level, Kennedy hoped to eliminate military intelligence agency Rivalries by combining them, that wouldn't be a bad idea. However, in view of the feud with the CIA, it appears likely in retrospect that he hoped to have the DIA replace the CIA over time. Yeah, that probably wasn't yeah. very popular of no. an idea. You don't get to just change everything. <laughs> Ironically, he achieved just the opposite result, as yet another intelligence agency rivalry was spawned. The CIA, it seems, was not so easily deposed. Yeah. Just to, just as with J. Edgar Hoover, they knew where all the bodies were buried. Yeah, and that's exactly what the problem is. In view of these rivalries, it's safe to uh, conclude that whatever information the DIA obtained from the other intelligence agencies about events prior to its creation was probably given to them only reluctantly. Consequently, whatever intelligence it gathered about alien interactions in the period between 47 and 61 was almost certainly incomplete and unreliable and possibly even included disinformation. That's helpful. Fake news. <laughs> DIA operatives had to depend mainly on MJ-12 for that information. So if MJ-12 decided to withhold what they knew in the interest of compartmentalization, or if they shared any sort of anti-Kennedy bias, the DIA would be left completely uninformed and would be forced to start its operations in 1962 with a clean slate. So it's like, ah, we know nothing, and that yeah. seems to be... What happened? They just, we get nothing. Yeah, anonymous. And again, this, if you're jumping in on episode three here and not uh, hadn't listened to one and two, anonymous is an, an operative from, we don't know exactly who he is. He's, he's somehow involved with the Serpo project, but we don't exactly know who he is. But he's, you know, has obviously a lot of information. Well, 
again, this we don't know if this is actually factual. We're reading this as though it really happened. Um, we don't know if it's a science fiction book <laughs> or if, uh, you know, we, we don't want it to be that. We want to keep an open mind. But um, anyway, Anonymous tells us that President Kennedy issued the directive for the even exchange program about six months into the planning for the return visit. Uh, that would have been around September 62. That means he was probably briefed on the even Los Alamos communications history by MJ-12 around that time. So he didn't know about it until 62. Huh? Oh, wow. As we noted earlier, the suggestion of an exchange program was first advanced in the fifth message to Serpo sent by EBE-1 in 1952 at the urging of the aliens' military handlers pre presumed presumably, ultimately, at the prompting of President Eisenhower. So this idea uh, didn't originate from Kennedy. In fact, he may have been persuaded to push the agenda by MJ-12 and explains how the DIA came to be involved in the operation. Certainly, Kennedy would have wanted his new intelligence agency firmly under the control of himself and uh, Robert McNamara to take over such a momentous and dangerous operation. It was perfectly understandable that he would have bypassed his old Bay of Pigs adversaries at the CIA to gain this control, even though he had already fired Director <laughs> Alan Doles and Deputy Director General Charles Cabell a year earlier. Well, he had a fire sale. Yeah. But there may have been a very important but less obvious reason. There is evidence that Kennedy's distrust of the CIA had deeper roots, that he believed that they did not necessarily serve the interests of any administration, but followed more of an independent agenda because they outlasted presidential terms. They don't go away. Right. They aren't... They aren't know. appointed. No. But who in the CIA... So, you know, who... Over the years, it's 2023 now. Mm -hmm. This is still happening, and... Who's really in charge? Who is in charge? Who's pulling the Who's pulling the strings now? In the CIA. And in you know, years later, you know, the CIA. But who? Who is it? It's not the president. Who is it? People, they're not going to tell you about. Yeah, that's the problem. No, I knew that guy who'd been in the CIA, and they don't talk. They don't tell any good stories. I'd like to have him here today. Oh. I'm sure he wouldn't say anything. Else. No, no, no. <laughs> Everything's a secret. Although they did answer to congressional oversight, they had such a broad international overview and so many deep secrets buried in their vaults that they were really powerful enough to do whatever they wanted. Yeah, because the DIA was new and was entirely Kennedy's creation, the president could be certain that this amazing story about space travel would not be used in the service of that independent agenda, but would eventually be given to the American people who had the right to know about it. But also, from what he knew, Kennedy may have considered the Evens to be potential enemies at that point. So that makes DIA involvement very logical. It's those poor DIA people, they have no, you need contacts, you know, to, to get anywhere in government. You have yeah. to know people, you have to, you know, you have to know the people that will help you. And Yeah, this is, yeah, you have to have relationships. When you're, and, you, know, you know, they're adversaries. At this point, it feels. It's like the when you know you bring in their nephew to you know here. This guy needs a job, and everybody just you know it's like you know yeah go you stay over there yeah, be in the flower room. 
After all, the DIA was charged with obtaining enemy intelligence, whether on or off the planet, and it may very well have been their recommendation that convinced Kennedy to agree to the exchange program in order to get as much information as possible about the Eben's weaponry and motives. Oh, interesting. If Kennedy did harbor this mistrust, it is further evidence that he was not informed about the Kingman crash in 1953 and the subsequent interactions with the Ebens that took place under Eisenhower. That would also explain why none of the information was known by the DIA and released by Anonymous with the Serpo material in 2005. The DIA part of the narrative picks up with the training of the Serpo team in 1963. Oh, they missed all the backstory. Yeah, they did. They missed everything. But they took it from there. At that point, the agency was two years old and had evidently just brought, been brought into the operation by McNamara and Kennedy, so they would have had only those records in their archives, so they had nothing from prior. Yeah, so that's, you know, you have no backstory. This has been going on for, you know, 10 years, and you're just assuming this is where it started. That's, they have, yeah, well, they take it and ran with it. If this assumption is correct, Kennedy would have been led to believe that the return visit and the exchange program plan, now under the control of the DIA, constituted our entire agenda with the Ebens. While in truth, we already had their rep representatives working with us on the reverse engineering of their craft at Los, Al Los Alamos Area 51 in the Nevada test site under the control of the CIA, the Air Force, Office of Special Investigation, the Office of Naval Intelligence, and probably the National Security Agency. And not one person knowing everything. Yeah. It seems likely the MJ-12 probably bowed to the wishes of the military and that the CIA... Uh, not allow the DIA to get their hands on that program. They knew that if Kennedy had been given the, that information, he almost certainly would have complicated matters by trying to involve his intelligence organization, the DIA, and to take over a mature operation already well advanced over the last nine years. Yeah, we've done it. This is our project. You don't get to keep come your play hands, with our ball. Keep your hands off. Thus began the era... <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> of limited presidential <laughs> access to top secret affairs. From the point of that from the, the point of that first precedent, MJ twelve controlled all interaction with the aliens and gave the president only the information that in their judgment he had a need to know. So they get to decide what the president knows. Yeah. President Eisenhower was the last president to be fully informed about the about our dealings with the extraterrestrials. And there's reason to believe that he was not told everything either. So while the Kingman event was not included in the Serpo story released by Anonymous in 2005, it belongs to the, this narrative because it fully explains why the Air Force had no reticence about sending 12 Americans to a distant planet for a period of 10 years. Yeah, what could go wrong? That's a long time. They were confident of the success of the mission because by the time President Kennedy had given the directive for the exchange program in 62, the military had already been secretly dealing with the Ebens right here on Earth in a reverse engineering program to duplicate their anti-gravity disc for nine years. Well, by 62, the CIA and the NSA had volumes of intelligence about the Ebens. We knew all about their history and their character and had already established a working diplomatic relationship with their civilization. Furthermore, we were assured of their good intentions because they had given us a gift, an anti-gravity disc to use 
as a prototype, supported by even scientists to help implement our reverse engineering program. So we're obviously using that today, right? Yes. In the absence of those nine years of direct interaction, sending those astronauts on an alien spaceship on a trip of 38 light years based solely on some very questionable and shaky communications across the vastness of space would have been very risky. One might even say reckless. Yeah. Pro a reckless proposition indeed. Yeah, that's... Oh, somebody walked by our house. That's not allowed. In view of the experience, the CIA and the NSA were perfectly willing to let Kennedy and the DIA take over the exchange program and to incur whatever risks existed. Physically going to their planet was the next logical step in developing a stable exopolitical relationship with the evens. They knew that Kennedy would never be able to take the credit for such a grand space triumph and to parade the success of the 12 mission before the public because he would be out of office by the time the astronauts returned, which is expected to be in 1975. This, is in fact, this, in fact, may explain why the astronauts were sent to Serpo on such an extraordinarily long mission. Okay, well, he was only in... <laughs> you had to go 10 years, make sure you won a couple presidents before you came back. Yeah, and, well, he didn't make it anyway. And, I don't know, we don't want to go down the rabbit hole of the Kennedy assassination. No, that's not, no. We've already visited We've done this. that. We've done two other episodes on it, and it's, it's been beat to death i don't want to say beat to death, beat to death. <laughs> it's been to death. it appears this may have been planned so that kennedy would have been retired from the presidency before they returned even if he served two terms they really had him in a straight jacket yeah he didn't get there anyway right kennedy's silence about the serpo adventure was critical if it had been revealed to the public it might have opened the entire pandora's box containing all the secrets of our dealings with the Ebens in the reverse engineering program. They knew how much he wanted a space-based accomplishment, so of course he would want the exchange program, but he had to keep quiet about it. It was the, it, while it was in progress because it could have ended in disaster. And that disaster would, of course, have become his legacy. As an ex-president, it would have been known that it was he who had sent the astronauts to Serpo. I mean, you know, he just, he wanted this so badly to, you know, to space. have a space program, but he couldn't even tell anybody about it. That's, you know, that's it, too bad. It would be said that he made a monumental error in judgment to have risked the lives of 12 Americans on such a fanciful and hazardous adventure, lacking the intelligence that such a journey required. He would not have had that intelligence because it wasn't shared by the CIA and the NSA. Well, you know, what do you, you have, it's a risk, well, okay? Yeah, just, You're taking so, a risk with an higher, a, a higher intelligence. So and, did they find people who had nobody? I mean. Yeah, they did what they did. Well, the selection process will, will be, will be discussing okay. as, as the story goes along. But yeah, they, they found people that didn't have, or basically orphans. Yeah. And uh, people that didn't have any kids and um, wives and. This kind of thing, and then there's a it's a the, as we go through this, it's discussed about the entire process, so it's really weird. People that will not be missed, yeah. Kennedy knew nothing about what they learned over the nine year period since the Kingman event. 
Yet because of his passion of his new frontier in space, he was willing to embark on what to him was a very high-risk mission. So MJ-12 got everything they wanted. They got the go-ahead for the exchange program from a new, inexperienced president who was committed to space travel. And because they did not share their comfort level with the Evams with him, he believed it was a very dangerous event operation and he could not risk the catastrophic blow to his legacy as an ex-president if the 12 astronauts never returned to Earth. So they obtained his silence. So that's why he didn't say anything Because he about thought it. it was much more risky than we, than we even, 12 we, thought it was. Yeah, but okay, you're president and you're going, you know what he knows. Would, would you send him? Mm-hmm. To us, they're not family members or anything, but they're humans. Well, are we forcing them to go or? Oh no! So they're oh, absolute. Well, we had, we didn't force them to go. We got them together, and um, you know, we interviewed them, and they didn't even say what the mission was until later, and not in their training, but before the training started, they let them know what, more or less, what's what was going on. So that there was actually one person that they uh, they had alternates, obviously, mm-hmm. and um, there was actually one person that. Uh, um, that's now nah, I'm not doing. It. <laughs> Never mind. Don't want to go. <laughs> That'd have been me. <laughs> yeah, I changed uh, my mind. Well, you come back and then they erase your they erase your um, your identity, mm-hmm. so they you, you're you're like have a new name and. Right. It, this pro- never happened. The witness happened. protection program. They put you in some yeah, Wyoming somewhere. They believe that they had manipulated President Kennedy perfectly. However, they left one factor out oh. of the equation. By putting the operation in the hands of the DIA, Kennedy was ensuring that the entire story would eventually be revealed. He made certain that, at its basic level, the organization shared his dedication to government transparency. Kennedy had always been strongly opposed to secret societies and to government secrecy. He knew that, perhaps not in his lifetime, but in time, this incredible saga of the human journey to another star system would be revealed to the public so that we would begin to understand our place in galactic society. And so, 42 years after his death, it was. from. Oh, never mind. I'm not reading that. So, this part of the book draws head draw heavy on the diary of the teen commanders so who were also known they were all numbered they had three digit numbers they weren't they were. later on when they got to the planet they decided to ditch that and Talk give you. everybody talk, talk they gave them uh nicknames they didn't yeah. even call them their real name but they gave themselves nicknames um the team commander who was known as 102 uh we're very fortunate to have his personal record of this amazing journey as it was happening in this diary is recorded far more than simple information and observations. We can also now appreciate all of his anxieties, his misgivings, and his impressions. When he says, I dreamt of Earth and described his Colorado home, we experience a wave of sympathy for this man who has volunteered to travel 240 trillion miles from Earth as we try with great difficulty to comprehend what such a journey could be like. Yeah, it was, uh, they actually, one guy, one of them died on the way. Um, we also become spectators to what he is seeing and hearing, and, and we learn what he thinks about his adventures. We must give many thanks to Anonymous, who had access to the actual diary, 
and who painstakingly transcribed it verbatim and sent it to the Serpo website. In sending in these diary entries, Anonymous prefaced them with a plea to Victor Martinez, the website moderator. He said, attached for your UFO thread list are just four pages of the team commander's diary. The diary contains a large number of pages, all handwritten. It took me several days to prepare the attached four pages from the diary. This is the actual verbatim diary of the team commander. It was started the morning of their departure. There were code names for control personnel and three-digit numbers for each team member. Uh, there are other codes and abbreviations for certain things, which is not explained. Um, I've typed the exact words, phrases, and abbreviations. Nothing has been changed, and otherwise I will ask you, this is anonymous talking, to not alter, change, or correct any of the text here, as you often do with oh. mine to make it grammatically correct. Yeah, don't, don't grade it. Yeah. This includes your use of caps to emphasize things I've written. I ask... You not do this with these journal entries, Victor. In making this plea, Anonymous is communicating to Martinez how important it is to leave the commander's precise phraseology intact and to reproduce it exactly as he recorded it, with incorrect spelling, grammar, and inconsistencies included. He understands that the diary must be given to, to posterity. Warts and all. He knew that someday schoolchildren all over the world would read these words in their history books and they would be right there with the commander to witness these events as they happen, to see through his eyes. Wouldn't it be interesting if this actually was true and it actually made it to the history books? I just want to know who had the imagination to write this diary. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. I'm into the... I'm actually reading the I'm reading, reading the diary. The diary yeah, now. I'm reading the diary now. It's, it's some of their experiences on the the planet, are interesting. Especially when they first get there and they see. Well, it's always tough when you first land and have to make friends and yeah, find your the, way to your hotel. And they've got a uh, and it's really hot there. Hope your Uber shows up. Yeah, it's like a hundred. Oh, your Uber. It's like a hundred and forty. It's like it's a hundred and forty degrees on the planet. Oh, I'm not going. You know, there's two suns. The radiation is high, um, but we're gonna we're we're gonna get to that part and to discuss. Uh, uh, you know, obviously they're able to deal with it and they even make them as um, comfortable as possible. That's nice. So, in the diary extracts in this section, we have tried to maintain this high degree of authenticity and have reproduced the text exactly as it was sent to the website. And we ask the reader's indulgence in reading the entire. So as your listeners' indulgence in reading the diary entries yeah. that are laced with errors, some careless, some in the interest of saving time, and some without regard for grammatical accuracy. Eh, I receive letters like that all the time. <laughs> in some cases were absolutely necessary, I've added the correct text and brackets. Yeah, so I, I get letters from the public, and grammar is no longer a yeah. theme anymore. Some people don't know how to use spell check either. It's interesting. In any case, I'm confident that the commander's intent will easily be understood the more we learn about 102 the more admirable he becomes having date dared to cross the galaxy he must now shepherd his team through 13 years of an incredible challenging existence you might ask i thought it was 10 years well there was some problem they lost track of the ability to keep track a, of time you know you can never get your flight to be there on time i know <laughs> They lost his luggage. 
three years. Well, they got there with everything, but it's a, and they were actually able to plug things in, but they brought motorcycles and jeeps and things, and I'm, I'm waiting to see how that they what they do about the maybe they'd use an alternative power source for that. I don't know. They must endure extreme heat, strange food, constant daylight from two suns in the sky, excessive radiation exposure, and little or no recreation. All the while, he must carry out his mission to learn all he can about this civilization. It's kind of like Survivor. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the toilets are weird, too. <laughs> there are times when he can easily be mistaken for Captain Kirk from Star Trek, such as when he confronts the Evens for authorizing the cannibalization of the dead teammate for a cloning experiment. Interestingly, the team arrived on Serpo within a few months of the date that Captain Kirk first appeared. <laughs> on our television screens in 1966. Apparently, the timing was right for both. Sometimes it seems there is an amazing confluence of reality and fiction. I'll let you go ahead and take it from just from here to here. President Kennedy gave the official directive for the Even Exchange Program. The date for the alien landing had been previously set for April 24th of 1964, and the landing site was to be at the western border of Holloman Air Force Base, adjacent to the southern entrance to the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. It was originally planned to be only a diplomatic visit, during which the aliens would also retrieve the bodies of the nine dead victims of the two New Mexico crashes, as well as the body of EBE-1. But President Kennedy decided to request that the event become an exchange program. Okay. Yeah, I'm stopping. So we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, That's, you know, that's this. It's interesting. It's an interesting story. I mean, we're going to, you know, continue um, plotting our way through it. It gets more interesting as it rolls along. So uh, thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Alien Probe Podcast. Again, this is um, part three of the um, the secret journey to planet Serpo. Pick it up and read it or listen to our rendition of the book. Um, visit us on Facebook, the Alien Probe Podcast. Like and subscribe on YouTube. Check out uh, Instagram and uh, at Alien probe pod and um we will see you on our next episode thanks deb for joining me i should you're welcome make sure i thank you and we'll see you next time